Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Do you have your favorite comeback story? Your favorite comeback story. You know, you know the stories that talk about rigs to, rig, rags to riches. Excuse me, someone who lost in the beginning, but they make their way back. Or my favorite comeback stories are the epic sports stories. The team that should have lost, but came up with three goals in the last six minutes of the game. We all love these kind of movies, do we not? It's a, it's a, it's a massive part of our culture. The comeback stories. My favorite is Rocky. A guy who literally has been beaten so bad that he can't stand up straight. His arms are falling over. He can't see out of one eye. But yet somehow he must have the strength to knock someone out with his arms, which he couldn't hold up just two seconds ago. We love comeback stories. We love them. It simply makes us want to shout, yes! But have you ever asked yourself why we love comeback stories so much? Have you ever wondered why it has such a pulse of the American culture that we love the comeback kids. I mean, good literature and good movies, they actually speak the language of human nature. So what are comeback stories speaking about the language of our lives? And maybe they're helping us see the universal problems that everyone feels in our culture, right? But no one can explain them perfectly. Or perhaps the movies are meant to keep fanning the flame of hope of endurance in a culture, right? Just everyone persevere, endure. We just sang about it, right? Is that what they're doing? Maybe. I think we love comeback stories because of something much deeper. You see, we all want to be heroes. We all want to be at the top. We all want to be the guy that scores the winning shot, that brings the salvation to the group of people in pain. Why is that? Why is it that we always want to be at the top? Why do humans always want to be the story's hero? It seems that this is another aspect of our sinfulness that we will see in God's word today. You see, one of the effects of sin is that what it's done when when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree in the garden, our hearts, they reverse God's call to love him and others, and we actually love ourselves as supreme. This is the effect of the fall of man that all of us have inherited, that we actually are the center of our own lives. Therefore, we love comeback stories because we want to be the heroes. And if we're not mindful as Christians, we can fall prey to this even as part of being the bride of Christ. We must understand what Augustine once said in his book, The City of God. He says this, two cities have been founded on this earth and they're defined by two loves. The earthly one is defined by the love of self. The other, the love of God. The love of self will even show contempt to God. But those who love God will even show contempt to self. In other words, one city glorifies God. One city glorifies self. We are living in the midst of a world that loves itself. And we're no different, are we? 
And maybe you're here this morning and you've been here for the last six weeks as we've been digging into the idea of sinfulness and all of its nuance and all of its ways. And maybe you're like, Pastor, I'm just so tired of hearing about my sin. Can we just talk about like the new earth or, or the resurrection? And yes, those things are glorious. But as long as the Bible describes sin in a variety of ways, we need to be a people who understand sin in a variety of ways. And let me remind you that in order to grasp the depth and the weight of mercy and the grace that Jesus provides, we must understand the depth and the weight of our sinfulness. See, a weak or distorted view of sin will always lead to a lifeless gospel. Unproductive in your sanctification or growing into holiness. So, let's allow God to shape our understanding of our own sinfulness so that we might revel in the glories of Christ. This week, we, we see here in our text that we're looking at, Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy. It's a young man who traveled him for many years, and he sent him to the church of Ephesus to be a pastor there among them. And he's explaining, right in the middle of a section where he's calling him in chapter 2 to be a worker approved by God. Flee youthful passions is one of the ways he describes that. And then we see this section here. And then right after this section is a section we're all familiar with if you've studied your Bible. Where the profitability of scripture to train us and prepare us for righteousness. It follows this. And then right in the middle is where we're putting our eyes and our focus on today. What I found interesting here is his first couple words. So look there at chapter 3 verse 1 with me. He says, but understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. He's like, in the midst of fleeing youthful passion, in the midst of understanding how the word shapes and trains us to live a life of righteousness, it says, you need to understand something. He says, you need to be able to grasp what's going on in the world around you, that in the last days, and if you're familiar with scripture, the last days is pretty much the time from Jesus' the Messiah coming in the incarnation until he returns. The last days are the gap between those two times, his first coming and then his second coming. We are in the last days. And what does he say about these last days? He says, understand this, the last days will come times of difficulty. And this word difficulty is an interesting word. It's actually used a pretty much totally different way if you think about it. So listen to to Matthew 8, 28 when Jesus is Dealing with some demonic forces, he says this in 28, 28. He says, and he came to the other side, to the country of the Gardenes, and two demon-possessed men met him there, coming out of the tombs. So fierce. This is the same word of difficulty here. Because when I hear the word difficulty, or you hear the word difficulty, maybe you're like, my car didn't start this morning, i got to go jump it. Or difficulty is, you know, that place at work that just makes it a little uncomfortable. We think of difficulty as kind of this little small-scale thing. And what Paul is telling the the church in Ephesus and us is that, no, the last days will be fiercely difficult for those who are in Christ. Not on small scales, on big scales. And then I love what he does there. Look at the next verse with me, verse 2. He says, for, so he's given us the foundation for the difficulty. He's saying, here's why times are going to be difficult, fiercely difficult in these last days. And he gives us a list of 19 descriptions of sin. 19. You're like, goodness, Paul, is four enough? 
Why would he do 19? And see, this is what we do when we read God's word. Not a word is there by chance, but it's there on purpose for God's design. For, as he says later on in the text, for our reproof, our correction, for our training in righteousness. So why 19? And when you see lists like this, one of the things I would encourage you to do is you are reading your word on your own and you see lists. You need to look at the list and slow down and ask yourself several questions. Some key questions that are good to ask is, are these in a specific order? Are these in a specific order for a reason? Or is he just randomly throwing out things? Another thing to look through is, is do we see a theme throughout this list? And today, it seems as if Paul is listing these descriptions based off of the very first one he lists. Look with me again at chapter 2. The reason times will be difficulty, fiercely difficult, is four people will be, first one, lovers of self. This one, this one is in this list, but it seems like it's the driving force behind the other 18 that follow. And as I studied through these and I meditated on these and I thought about these and I looked them up in the variety of ways that you look up how words are in their meanings, it seemed as if there was three main themes that we can draw out of this. Three main themes that we can draw out of what does it mean to be a lovers of self. Remember, this is what we see in the world around us. This is what we know resides in us, the residue of our sinful nature if we're not, if we're in Christ. First, let's look at this. First theme we see from this list is that sin magnifies itself by craving outward affirmations. Sin magnifies itself by craving outward affirmations of people. We see this in the very word, lovers of self. But then look again, you see it just a little bit of follow. What's the next thing it says? Lovers of money, proud. This idea of boasting about your own accomplishments. Or the very next one, arrogant. Okay, again, when we read this, you're like, proud and arrogant. Isn't that the same thing? And so we have to ask yourself, what does he mean by the two things there? Well, a lover of self not only loves to boast about themselves, but they have a very inflated view of themselves. So much so, slide down with me to, the, to a little bit further, to verse 4. This is kind of the end of this magnification of self treacherous reckless and i love this term swollen with conceit lovers of themselves are so boastful have such an inflated view of themselves that the bible literally describes them as swollen bloated with self-glorification like a puffer fish poof look at me we laugh, but that's the way Paul says is each and every one of us apart from Christ. That the world we live in is swollen with conceit. Why? When we're born this way, with our sinful nature, one of the effects that happens is that you've been given a magnifying glass. What do you do with a magnifying glass? You magnify something. You make it seem larger Here's the problem. When you and I were born, all of you have been born by God with a magnifying glass. It's called your speech and your actions. You magnify something with your speech and your actions. The problem was is that when sin entered the world, one of the ways it distorted our hearts is that now we want to magnify ourselves. See, it was given to us by God. 
so that he might be magnified in everything we say and do. But our hearts no longer love God supremely. Instead, we are lovers of self. So what do we do? We use the thing God gives us to make much of self. And you know this to be true about ourselves and others. We're even so deceptive in this that sometimes we we uh, put in the little name, right? Have you ever watched? It's so funny sometimes. I love it, especially guys. So you're at the gym, right? And you're, you're working out and, and there's always this one up. This one up that we have to like, well, hey, I bench press blink, blink, and I did it four times. And the next guy says, well, I, yes, last week I did it six. And then of course what? You got, there's this, con- why? Why are we that way? Because we want to shine the magnifying gla- of glory on ourselves. We're swollen with our own conceit. That all we can see is ourselves. This is one of the reasons why social media has such a grip on our culture. Because social media literally magnifies your ability to magnify yourself. Not only do the people in your community get to hear about it, but everybody gets to hear about how awesome you are. Facebook, TikTok, and other such things. They grip our culture because there's an oversized magnifying uh, glass now to feed the cravings that we want for outward affirmations. We do that. We want the likes, right? You feel like, oh, hmm, yeah, I got 14 likes on that one. And the problem is, is that the next time you get free, you're going to feel like, man, I didn't get to 14. So I got to brag about myself some more. Show how awesome my life is. So much that you even stage the pictures you put on these things. This testifies to the reality of Scripture. That we're swollen with conceit. And this does not mean social media is evil, but that it can fan the very things that sin grows in our hearts. And if we're not intentionally using them correctly, then it can be a fuel for self-love. Social media just testifies to this reality. Now, one thing I want you to understand, though, is that we've got to be careful that we do not throw out the magnifying glass. That's not what God's saying in this text. He's saying, well, just get rid of the magnifying glass. Smash it. He's saying, no. He's like, give it and use it for the reason I gave it to you. Magnify me. The one of supreme value. See, God doesn't say stop boasting. He says stop boasting what? In yourself. Boasting is not the problem. The problem is that we boast about ourselves too much. He says this, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 33, boast in the Lord. Or a little bit further in this book, he says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Magnify God with your life. And here's the problem. Some of us are going to walk out of here, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to fix. So I'm going to do three to one ratio. I'm going to post about God on Facebook for every three times that I post about myself. And that'll fix my magnification problem that I'm swollen with conceit. That's not how the Bible describes it. Your deepest problem is that you are the center of your loves. You loved yourself supremely. The only way to begin to magnify God is to love him supremely. It's the work he does in our hearts. It's the work he does by his spirit that we begin to see the most valuable one. The infinite God, worthy of all power and praise. This is how we begin to magnify his name. We must love God supremely as our most treasured possession. And then magnifying him will follow. 
What do you magnify? And we'll know what you love. See, we all crave this outward affirmation and magnify self, don't we? And we see others do this as well. And sometimes it can be rather annoying. But you know what's worse? You know what's worse is when we treat others for selfish gain as if they're merely objects. We treat other people as objects for selfish gain. You see, this is the next thing that you kind of see in our list here before us. That sin reduces others to mere objects for your selfish gain. We see this in in a big list of them. Look there again with me at chapter 3, verse 2. It says, for people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. Now here's one, abusive. Now I would I would actually prefer this to be translated as it used to be, right? Because this word is actually blasphemy. It's the Greek word blasphemy. It's a verbal shaming of someone else so that you look better than you are. That's why it's called abusive. It's it's a verbal looking at that person and blaspheming them, lowering their standards so that you look all the better. You're treating them as a mere object so that you can magnify yourself. We see another verbal one down a little bit later, slanderous. Right? It's accusing people. This word is actually diablos, which we know is a name for what? The devil in the scriptures. He's the master accuser. And so we too, because of our selfishness, we use our words to lower people and to constantly accuse them for selfish gain. Not only that, we see a massive list of outward actions that we do, helping us to see the depths of our love of self. Look with a few of them at me. Verse 3 says, heartless. This is the idea of being thoughtless towards a person because they're merely a means to your end. Part of the effects of sin is that we become thoughtless about others. They're merely a means to our end. Not only that, but they're, it says in verse 3, they're unappeasable. And here's the interesting image. A person who so loves himself that they're so stubborn that it, they will not bend or make a compromise. It's my way or the highway. Don't you dislike it when the scriptures describe you? So I was reading this list, I'm like, man, there's still so many of these things that reside in my heart. But it goes on, it uses the words brutal, treacherous, reckless, all of them, these outward displays of self-love that if it goes unchecked will help us simply do nothing but devour people as objects. Again, did you notice that our problem is not other people? Just like our problem was not the magnification glass, it's that we turned it on ourselves. The problem here is not that God created the world to function within relationships. People are not the problem. The problem is is that we reverse the pump of relationships. Here's what I mean by that. One of the greatest inventions ever known to mankind, if you've ever tried to go camping and you have blow-up mattresses or you have a pool that you constantly have to blow up floats with these fun little things that you can plug into the wall and it goes, <laughs> right, it blows for you. But what's even cooler, and I didn't know they had this for the longest time, is that you can take the little spout on one side that blows and put it on the other side, plug it back up to your stuff, and it goes what? It just sucks. And what's happened is when sin entered the world, what it did to our hearts is it went from being a people who go give to a people who go suck, drain from everyone around you. Beloved, 
we have been called to help people flourish around us. And this is done by being a giver who's thoughtful and considerate in everything we do. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament says, New Testament people show hospitality. It's the greatest way to cultivate having a giving spirit. There's nothing worse than people walking into your house during your floor, breaking your chair, spilling your milk, and eating from your fridge to make you say, but I want to give. But I want to give. All of me for all of Christ for all my days. This is why Luke tells us in Acts 20.35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Brothers and sisters, the only way to change the pump of relationships in your heart, where you're not sucking life from everyone around you, is to be captivated by one who has given himself so gloriously to you. To behold Christ. His selfless acts. He was worthy of all glory, praise, and honor. Yet he came so that we might have life. And this again is not done by merely changing your old behaviors with new behaviors. It's done by changing the love at the center of your heart. Do you love God supremely? These things will begin to flow. From that way. Loving God supremely changes the way we see relationships. When he loves us so well, we're enabled to love others. We must become those who love others and not see them as objects for selfish gain. And the fantastic thing about the Bible is this. Listen, I love the way Paul describes this. He do, He's like, dude, to die is gain, but, but for me to stay is your benefit. I, I'm willing to pour myself out as a drink offering for you. Paul's like, I want to give all of me to you. What could have that transformation in Paul's heart? If you go to the section just before, he says, I count all things as rubbish to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Christ changes our hearts to become that type of a person. When we're so enthralled and in awe of him that we actually get joy by giving so well to others. And if you've, if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I get home at the end of the day, and I'm tired sometimes. But I'm like, man, I'm such a good tired. I think I've spent myself for Christ's sake today, and there's so much joy right now in my heart. Only our amazing God could so rewire a people that we willingly pour ourselves out as a drink offering for people. So we see this text at least two ways. It describes the love of self. One, that we turn the magnification lens on ourselves, and we love outward affirmations. Another way is that we treat people as objects for selfish gain. There's one more theme we see here from Paul, and it's our third one. And it's this. Sin distorts reality by redefining it for self distorts reality. I'm going to read through the list of the ones on this one. And you just tell me how you think you hear a a distortion of reality. Lovers of money. What, What reality has been distorted there? That money can buy you happiness. Disobedient in appearance. What reality has been distorted? That I am self governing. I am my own authority. That's just not reality. Ungrateful. 
that I deserve. I'm entitled. Unholy. Taking sacred things and using them for selfishness. No self-control. The reality that no is never an option. Not loving good. Morality, I get to make up my own. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We worship what is to be used and use what is to be worshipped. And last one, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Even religious for personal glory. See, often as people, we can assume something about the world that is simply not true. Sin so warps our perspective of the things around us that our reality does not line up with indeed reality. We live often because of sin in an imaginary world of our own making. And we see this all around us, don't we? Where we're trying to redefine sexuality, gender, marriage, a variety of things to fit what our reality that sin says is real, but it's not. A world where money, fame, and riches are flaunted as finally making it. And many would say this is because we've lost our traditions or we need to go back to the old ways. That's not it. This is a manifestation of the heart of mankind. Hey, listen, brother. We as Christians are not surprised by these things. Sometimes I, I, I fear that we as Christians, we walk out and we're like, oh, sinners are acting like sinners. What's going on? We should not be shocked by these things. The Bible tells us this is how the love of self will be manifested in our world. We're not surprised by it. We're grieved by it. And the fix is not going back to the old ways or going back to the Constitution. Christ alone brings about the better understanding of reality. Since so distorts our reality that we even use Christ's name for self-glory. God, forgive us. And by your grace, help us to see where we fall into some of these categories. And what do we do? What do we do if we, if we see ourselves as being described here? We're looking at Paul's list and we're like, that's me. Well, this is where we have to look to Christ. So would you go with me to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. One of the ways in Scripture when you see the, the sinfulness of sin, 19 different ways of describing the love of self, it appears that he was doing this. We, we have to go back then and, and marvel and behold Christ and who he is. Matthew chapter 16. This is where Jesus has just got done warning the disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. He says, no, no, who do you say that I am? And Peter, for the first time in the in the gospel he says you are christ the son of the living god you're the messiah the promised one what's so amazing here is that what he says shortly after that look at verse 17 of chapter 16 it says and jesus answered him blessed are you simon barjona for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one. But then I love the next, the next scene. Now he begins to tell them, oh, and by the way, 
I've got to go die. I'm going to be given over to the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they'll be killed. But, but do not fear, in three days I will rise again from the grave. And Peter goes, may I never be, Lord. Look at verse 23, or excuse me, 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> I, I can just see myself being that guy. You know, I, I had what I thought Jesus was, the imagination of my own reality that I created. Jesus is my cheerleader. Jesus is my whatever. And then Jesus tells me he's got to die. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't fit my world that I created you to be in. And he says, what? Get behind me, Satan, to Peter. For you are setting your mind on the things, what? Of earth, not on the things of God, on the things of man, not on the things of God. And I love what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is displaying glorious reality of who he is. And he does so most poignantly at the next text. Look at verse 24. If you've seen yourself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you've seen yourself as one who is in rebellion to God, lover of self, hurting others for selfish gain, turning the magnificent, listen to Christ's words here. It says, Jesus then looked at his disciples after he corrected Peter. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Listen to me for a second. Christ's work on the cross is glorious. It's an all-sufficient sacrifice for every sin of anyone who would ever believe. His resurrection was real. It was legitimate. It was his physical body coming from the grave. Testifying that the sacrifice was accepted. He's ascended to the Father. And now he looks it up and looks at us and says, Follow me? How? Die to self. Wow. The opposite of what is manifesting itself in the world around us. We're lovers of self. We are supremely beings. We do everything for our selfish gain. And God looks at us as if you truly want to follow me, if you truly believe in my sacrifice for your sins, my resurrection for your hope of new life, then you must die to yourself. Literally, you're taking all that you are. God, I love myself. I want to shine on myself, but I don't want to do that anymore because I've beheld something more beautiful. I've beheld something more glorious. And God, I'm just dying. I'm laying down. I'm just saying, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. See, Christ lived to magnify God and he calls us to do the same and empowers us to do the same. See, Christ lived by serving others so that we in turn could serve alongside him even at personal cost. And Christ lived to display the true reality so that we no longer walk as those who are deceived. And this is the call. Die to yourself. Have you been there? So enthralled with the beauty and glory of Christ that you literally see yourself now as so insignificant. Here's the amazing thing is that Christ says, when you behold my glory, you see your insignificance. But here's the amazing thing. I'm giving you my name. I'm giving you the spirit that is going to so transform you that now you will always want to magnify my name. You will always want to treat others with kindness and love and serve them. That you believe there is coming a day when reality will declare itself new heaven and new earth. 
And it all comes as we die to ourselves and cling to our only hope, which is Christ. The call of the gospel for those of us who have seen ourselves in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is to deny ourselves, to die to the love of yourself, and cling to that which is of greater beauty and value, God who redeems through his Son. To reject the love of self is to cling to the only thing that's truly lasting. Christ, the conqueror of the grave, the bringer of a new creation. Where are you today? Are you still in love with yourself? See the beauty of Christ. Die to yourself. Follow him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.